Welcome to Rules of the Frame. I am your host, Connor Reed, and here's your other host, John Skinner. Call me the Butcher. John the Butcher. John the Butcher. Whoopsie daisy. <laughs> I was going to do an accent, but yeah, whoopsie daisy. <laughs> That's the best line reading of the movie. I mean, although he improved it, but. So for those of you listening in for the first time, we are a film podcast. We pick a subject or theme and explore films related to those topics. Our overall goal is to encourage the general public to view film as more than just a piece of entertainment, but also a piece of art and something to discuss and explore. We are in our Messy Masterpieces series where we have been going over films that maybe weren't well received when they came out, maybe were box office office flops, maybe were just like overshadowed by a director's career or an actor's career or something like that but these are films that might not be as fine-tuned as some other classics that you might think of like goodfellas or taxi driver or something like that but we think these films have merit and just kind of doing the series to say like hey you should take another look at this because this film is great in its own way even though it's not as squeaky clean as some other films and all that so this is a little bit of a contested one for being in the series but now i'm glad that we chose it it is martin scorsese's gangs of new york and john especially was pushing for this one a little bit more i was almost gonna let it go but yeah i'm I'm glad we didn't what was the reason i forgot why you thought it was too good no no i was just like eh, i don't know if this is one that i'd kind of include in the series uh i was just like thinking that maybe the first time I watched it was just too much through like rose colored glass and that I kind of over liked it. And I still really like this film, but I don't think I nearly liked it as much as the first time I watched it. What is the film? What what film are we doing? Oh, I already said gangs of New York. (laughs) Oh yeah, you did. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, I, I liked it just as much as last time. And I, I'm Mm -hmm. glad that most of these in this series, I think we kind of have a pretty strong sense of, but this one I hadn't seen in a while. So, uh, but I just felt like it was it counted towards what we're talking about, and I'm glad. Yeah, I'm glad we did it because uh, watching it again, it it what I remembered being not bad, but off about this was off about this, and mm. it, it's definitely. You know, some of these messy masterpieces are like, man, we try. I think we're trying to avoid ones where we're like nitpicking them and saying, well, if they did this, this, and this, and this, it would be perfect, right? And more of like, it's a mess. You got to deal with it. You kind of have to like like it as it is. There's not really a, a alternate version. And I think this is definitely the case. You're just kind of sitting in the mess, and it's awesome. It's muddy. <laughs> it's uh it's raining in new york and uh and we got mud on our shoes but uh it's it's an enjoyable it's an enjoyable feeling watching this movie right well i'll get us started off with a summary of the film in 1840s new york two local gangs the irish dead rabbits and the so-called nativists engage in combat to see who holds sway over the five points the leader of the nativists bill the butcher kills the dead rabbits leader priest valen orphaning his young son They send him to a reformatory school, and 16 years later, he emerges as a young man. 
Amsterdam Valen heads back to the Five Points to see if it has completely changed. The old hideout for the dead rabbits is being transformed into a church, but the place is still stricken with poverty and crime. Bill the Butcher meets up with politician Boss Tweed to tell him that he owns the Five Points. Tweed convinces him to team up to work together to get votes from the Irish who are immigrating to America. Amsterdam is met by Johnny, who as a boy helped them out when Bill's gang came after them. Johnny shows him around the Five Points and they bump into Jenny, who picks Johnny's pockets. Johnny takes Amsterdam to Bill to present his payment from his gang. Bill takes notice of Amsterdam, but tells him that he needs to pay the next time he sees him. Bill gives Johnny a tip to raid a ship in the harbor. Johnny and his gang search the ship, but it has already been looted by a rival gang. Amsterdam gets the bright idea to take one of the dead bodies on board and sell it to a local doctor. And this makes the headlines. Bill takes Amsterdam under his wing after that and after he fights and beats his right-hand man. Amsterdam bumps into Jenny again, and she steals his father's amulet. He gives chase and gets the necklace back from her. At this point, Amsterdam starts working for Bill undercover to try to get to the right ritualistic point to kill him. They attend a public dance where Jenny gets to choose the suitor, and she chooses Amsterdam over Johnny. After they dance, they have an intimate session, and Amsterdam realizes that Jenny is somehow in cahoots with Bill after finding a necklace that Bill had taken from someone else. Bill starts teaching Amsterdam how to use a knife and how to kill someone with it, and the two start attending public events together, such as a theater where someone tries to assassinate Bill, but Amsterdam stops them just in time. One of the former dead rabbits meets up with Amsterdam and tells him that he's messed up and tells him to be more careful and to try to kill off Bill. Later that night, they are at a brothel. Jenny comes over and starts treating Bill's wound, but then ends up with Amsterdam, and the two go upstairs and make love. That morning, Amsterdam is awoken by Bill in his bedroom, who tells him about Priest Valen and the time he beat him in combat, so he cut out his eye and swore vengeance to kill him and take control of the five points. At this point, Jenny realizes that Amsterdam is Priest Valen's son. Are you eating a carrot? Or no, that's a, a Sorry, I'm, ice cream I'm pot, dessert. right? Keep, go, keep going. Okay. It's, a long, it's a long summary. I'm, I'm just in, for, <laughs> in, in it for the ride. <laughs> Amsterdam is infuriated by hearing the story of how Bill killed his father, and so he goes out and starts throwing a knife. Monk, the man who used to be in the Dead Rabbits, decide, watches him. You can take your time. I got to, I have to, I have something I'm doing. <laughs> Johnny is jealous over Amsterdam being with Jenny and decides to go and tell Bill that Amsterdam is Priest Valen's son. Later that night, they celebrate the New Year at a giant Chinese pagoda where they convince Bill to give a knife-throwing show. He takes Jenny up on stage and is dangerously throwing knives at her and cuts her to try to taunt Amsterdam. That night, whenever he's about to take a flaming shot in remembrance of his battle with the dead rabbits, Amsterdam tries to assassinate him, but Bill stops him just in time and stabs him multiple times and beats him to a bloody pulp. Jenny takes Amsterdam down into the caverns where the dead rabbits used to hide out and heals him down there. She says that she has saved up enough money and that they can leave to go to San Francisco. Whenever he heals, he decides to stay and to take vengeance in full form and bring back the dead rabbits. Bill is infuriated by this and denounces Tweed, 
So Tweed decides to go to Amsterdam whenever his gang starts to build notoriety. They agree and they decide to elect Monk as sheriff. They harass all of the local citizens into voting multiple times for him, and he ends up getting elected. But then immediately after his election, Bill kills him. Tweed tells Bill that he has gone too far and that he can't do this. And Bill says that he owns the town and that nothing could stop him at this point. In response to this, Amsterdam publicly announces a challenge to Bill whenever they try to burn down the Catholic Church. He agrees and they set the rules for them. During all of this, the draft is being instated for the Civil War and tempers start to rise as the rich are buying themselves out of the draft and the poor have to go no matter what. It escalates to a point where a mass mob starts rioting in the streets, burning down buildings and attacking rich houses and also lynching African-Americans and burning down an African-American orphanage. The Union troops decide to come in and suppress the riot, but in the midst of this is the big planned battle between the dead rabbits and the nativists. Before they can even clash, cannon fire comes in and starts demolishing both sides' troops. Smoke is surrounding the area, and Bill comes out and starts slashing at Amsterdam, who can't seem to get in a good hit, until a giant cannonball comes in and knocks them both flat. Bill has a giant piece of metal protruding from his stomach, and Amsterdam seizes the chance and stabs him, while all of his other troops are being killed by the Union troops. Amsterdam is both relieved and grieved at killing his new father figure, and Jenny comes over and tends to him. They bury Bill right next to Amsterdam's father, over a time lapse to the year 2001, the graves are nothing more than grass looking over the New York skyline. And then Not That Great U2 song starts playing. <laughs> so my two words for this film, we're doing a positive and a negative. So overblown folktale. Because I really admire this film in the sense that I think it's maybe Scorsese's most ambitious film. And he's put a lot of care and effort into this and I think just totally mystified. Everyone knows that he loves New York. It's often the focus of a lot of his movies, especially his earlier films. And he says this film is kind of the centerpiece and the base for all of his other movies. So I really appreciate it from that. But I think he fell too much in love with the time period and just tried to show so much that... The film maybe got a little bit bloated and detracts a little bit from the main storyline, but I'll, I don't necessarily think that's a negative, but I think it harms the narrative because of it. But I also love too that he doesn't just try to go for 100% historical accuracy and just make it play by play, but kind of inserts his own pieces there. He said he's very inspired by Fellini's Satyricon and so decides to kind of embellish certain elements of it bring characters backwards and forwards of time create new characters create new events and all that sort of stuff and it's a really fascinating movie that i don't know if we'll ever see again and really harkens back to like a lot of old hollywood sorts of stuff and so i really admire it for that and just kind of this mythology that it kind of builds around builds around history what was the good part i guess that was the folktale part that's folktale is good Mm -hmm. Yeah, so mine is similar. Mine's um, muddled immersion because, or actually I'll say meandering immersion. So this movie, there's two parts of this movie that are absolutely spectacular, absolutely perfect. (laughs) And one is 
Daniel Day-Lewis's character is amazing. And yeah. and then the world around him is so it is it is one of the just forget what era of history. It's one of the most like historically immersive depictions of any era I've ever seen where it just is amazing how many sets they've built and like everything feels lived in and and it feels like a living city that they're that they're filming these this uh this movie in and um that by far is the best because you really like same thing as you like i i think technically it's bloated but i never feel bloated when i'm watching it i'm never i never drags when i watch it it, it seems like it's it's just like, oh yeah, there's a story going on. Like it's it's an excuse to like, well, who doesn't love a scene where a house is burning down and two competing fire departments come and because they didn't pay for insurance or whatever, instead of them fixing the fire, they loot the house and like like just this very of the you know nineteenth century urban life in New York in any big city. It's just something that you never see on film, and it's so wonderful to just live in it because it's something you don't get a lot of. But it may not add to the story all that much, but I can never complain. The meandering is there's weird cuts. that This movie is edited kind of weird at, at moments, and it kind of can det- that detracts from the story. And the pacing is, I wouldn't even say bad, I'd say non-existent. Like, it's just sort of meanders for half the movie, then the movie changes completely when Amsterdam tries to kill um, the butcher. And then the re- second half of the movie is a completely different setup. And uh, it's a little quicker, I think. Like, it seems like it runs through. This movie actually feels like it could be an hour longer easily if they if they showed everything happening and, and gave it the time that some scenes get. Um, but... Yeah, so the pacing is weird, not not even bad, just completely different uh, than your than a normal movie. And then the characters are fine. They're, I, you know, besides the butcher, I think the characters are are interesting, but not like super compelling. The this the story of revenge is interesting, but it never seems to be. There's you know there's depth behind the scenes, but we never really get a lot of insight into the the uh, the conflict that Amsterdam is having. Obviously he, the butcher becomes a new father for him and things like that. And we can get into that. But uh, other than that kind of through line, that concept, they don't really explore a lot of conflict between the characters, but it's still a world that's wonderful to live in. And I wouldn't change the movie in any way, honestly, except for a couple things at the end. But really? We'll get that's, into that. that's fascinating. Okay. Before, yeah, before we get into our full discussion, I'm going to go into now in film history. So this film has kind of been brewing in Scorsese's mind from a very young age. He grew up in New York in a very Italian part of the city. And when exploring different parts of it, it was like, oh, that's interesting. The St. Patrick's Church is here. And there's all these other gravestones with Irish names and all these other places that he's like, this doesn't really fit with like, I thought there's just always been Italians here. And kind of realizing that there was another history to the area of New York that he lived in. So it was just fascinated just kind of by the pieces of history that he kind of drudged up and was like, oh, I wonder what this led to. He reads the book, The Gangs of New York by Herbert Asbury, and is just fascinated by it. It's like, I have to make this a movie. And so buys the rights to it. I think he produces a script and a famous producer announces that he's going to make the film first. And then that doesn't really end up happening. He's trying to make it 
but then just can't really find the budget for it, can't really figure out how he's going to portray this huge time period and just kind of mix in all of these characters and decides to make Raging Bull instead, which is a very smart decision. And just throughout the next like 25 years is attempting to make it at every different point, but just can't really find the right spot to do it. And so finally in 2000, I believe they write another, do another version of the screenplay and they finally get into production being backed by Miramax. It was originally just supposed to be produced by Disney. And then Disney was like, this is just way too much. We're going to send it to Miramax instead, which I can't even imagine. Like, I wonder if they meant like Touchstone was going to make this, but because there's no way that this would be a Disney movie, like none whatsoever. And so they send it over to Miramax and throughout the... I do want this to be a, a section of Disneyland, though. Yeah. That would be wonderful. And kind of awful. <laughs> Uh, so he pairs up with Miramax and then again classic Hollywood villain Harvey Weinstein kind of starts bumping into things and really competing against it as the budget is going way and way over and they finally get to this point where they've run out of money the studio is like you can't film anymore so Scorsese puts in his own money towards it but still doesn't really have enough to quite do what he wants to do and in the midst of editing it uh, September 11th happens and they decide to postpone the film because of how many shots in the film there are of New York City burning. And so they postpone it till December of 2002 when it is finally released and kind of gets mixed results, but it also gets a couple Oscar nominations as well. And yeah, it's a very strange entry point into Scorsese's career. It's his most ambitious film, and I, I, don't, I don't feel like it's a waste or a missed opportunity, honestly. This movie obviously is something is almost perfectly designed to make me love it because it's a story of the Tammany Hall machine, you know, and how they work with criminals to to get the votes they need from immigrants coming off the boats. And it's just the storytelling in this about what life was like and and the power dynamics at play is just absolutely wonderful. There's that that one shot where it's showing the people coming off the boats and then it's showing the people getting conscripted and then it's showing the soldiers getting on the boats and then the bodies coming off the boats and it's like all one continuous shot and the camera's fluid and it's just wonderful. And um, I I love all that about this movie, uh, but the story is almost secondary to that and it doesn't surprise you with a lot of things. But, you know, honestly... I just I love every second of the movie because the world that they've built is so awesome and so unique and um, and even when they do like long scenes that don't necessarily have that much to do with the story I'm just like totally down for it. Hmm. That's interesting because I mean I don't love every second of this movie I I will say, but the your your negative word of meandering is interesting because that to me is one of my favorite parts of Scorsese films as like. Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, just like Goodfellas, all of that. There is kind of like there is a main storyline, but there is so much meandering throughout. And that is great. And the way the reason why this movie kind of surprises me and why I think it's messy is because in a certain sense, I think this is his most straightforward film. Like it's the one that focuses the most on plot. And I mean, I know that can be a little bit competed later on with like Hugo or something like that. But even still, that is so much an exploration of like film and like childhood and like kind of parental issues, that sort of thing. 
but this movie where there usually I feel like there would be more psychological elements that Scorsese would throw in are kind of completely thrown out. And I also kind of have a theory behind this. I don't think that is Scorsese. I feel like he would have put that in there. I honestly think that that is Weinstein fighting back against stuff because there is a lot of, when you read about the making of this movie at the time, he's like, oh yeah, he's a great producing partner and all that. But then like later on, they're like, no, it was awful. Like he was just trying to control everything and fighting back on everything. Like with Bill's look of them saying like, okay, he's going to have a mustache and he's going to have a fake eye or a, a glass eye. And Weinstein was just like, no, you can't do that because that's going to be bad for marketing. It's Daniel Day-Lewis. The studio or the audience has to know that it's Daniel Day-Lewis. He has to. He's the one who's like fighting for all the traditional stuff. Like I I go back and forth on whether or not the romance between Amsterdam and Jenny was originally in it or if that was something that Miramax was like, this is you just have to include this in the film. Like there has to be a love story because it just feels so out of place and so romantic which is just weird like all of the Scorsese relationships it are so toxic it's all like a commentary on this just toxic American masculinity especially the one that's like promoted by like like the just kind of like classic New York Italian American family dynamic where there's just like you know she stays at home she cooks and then the husband beats the wife. And like that's something that's so apparent in like all of his movies. And it's just weird how straightforward this is. And how I like there's kind of some dynamicism a little bit, but it's basically just like, ah, I don't want her to steal from me. Crap, she stole from me. All right, I'm mad. Now she's gonna cut me. Oh, but she does she only cuts me a little bit. Okay, now she's gonna bite me. And I'm like, that's not compelling. Like <laughs> yeah, it's weirdly conventional, like weirdly conventional romance in this weirdly, it's almost like a storybook, it's not story, I mean, it's a conventional story of revenge that almost feels like it has to get to its ending, you know, and and then the romance is like weirdly happy ending, you know, mm-hmm. like weirdly like not, you know, not really all that compelling because it's so, so market driven you know it, it right. does i bet they put, i put that in there it feels like it i don't think it distracts from the movie all that much but it's just it can be kind of weird at moments um i said i liked every i love every second of this movie that's not actually true but i enjoy the movie i never feel like man i would cut this out of it i i just think there's parts that don't make as much sense so i think this movie has a significant like the first half is different, significantly different than the second half. I love the first half. The first half is almost perfect. You have this building up of the butcher relationship and this weird, compelling idea that he's becoming his new father, right? And and that that that's hurting him because you. It's weird. I mean, the butcher is a villain, and you're supposed to hate him, but you don't for the first half, at least. Kind of. You I... you really you really. I don't know. I. He's crazy I racist. This guy, right? <laughs> no, I know. He's crazy racist. He's the head of the nativist party. Mm-hmm. I should hate this guy, but Daniel Day Lewis plays him so well. Mm-hmm. It's just like, yeah, he's kind of likable. I kind of get why people like him for the first half. And then they kind of have to remind you, yeah, he's bad and he's doing all these violent things, threatening violence against women for mm-hmm. to, to to torture he's, Amsterdam, things like that. He's the most charismatic character in the whole city. Oh yeah. For sure, absolutely, and 
you're supposed to hate him more than than I think mm-hmm. I end up hating him. And it's because Daniel Day-Lewis does such an amazing job with that character. But the first half, you kind of are with him, right? You're feeling that compelling. You get why he's starting to like him and, and feel loyal to him. And then once they become enemies, and it it seems like it's building to more dramatic betrayal later in the movie. And it kind of surprises you how quickly he decides to do that. And once that happens, it's sort of just like... They're building their gangs up, which is interesting, but the the world building still continues to be awesome. But the character characterization and the character work and the and the you know the 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 story sort of gets conventional and boring for that second half, where they're just okay, we're building this up, and and uh, it's still exciting because it's it's just so it's just just a world a weird world, but you know it kind of I don't want to say it loses steam, but the the story recedes again and and you stop caring as much about it because you know they're going to get to the end and then they have this climactic battle and it's weirdly anticlimactic, actually. Yeah. I, I think it's sort of the first half and the second half are sort of different discussions about what works and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree with you on that. And one of the interesting things about this film is that Daniel Day-Lewis wasn't the original one intended for Bill the Butcher. It was supposed to be Robert De Niro, which would have been a completely different performance. And... I think kind of like you said, John, that if it was De Niro, and I love De Niro, he's one of my favorite actors, but I think if it was him, it would be kind of more of that like, oh, I just hate this guy. Like, oh, he's just a bad person. But yeah, that the fact that like, you know, throughout all of this, that this is one of the great things about Daniel Day-Lewis. He's like every actor he or every character he plays thinks that they're the good guy and thinks that they're the ones with like the true intention. And... I feel like De Niro's performance would have been different in an interesting way, but also would maybe have lost some of that element as well and have just been like, hey, this is a really bad guy, you know? But, and I think this is also to Scorsese's credit too, because you, it is this weird mix of like a scene where he's just like horribly offensive. And then the next scene, he's like giving out meat to the poor. And then he's like doing all these things, which is like, what the real, you know, the real person who this is based on is, it's what he did, you know, he was this horrible criminal, but then also, like, really cared about, like, the people in his group, but then was horribly racist and demeaning to everyone else, and, like, you know, just tortured all of, like, basically who anyone who wasn't born in America and who doesn't have an American accent, you know, <laughs> like... So it's so fascinating, and especially because, like, I feel like this is a film that people usually place towards the top of, like, Day-Lewis's performances, and yet it's a film, and this is, like, one of the reasons why I was like, okay, I think we should do this movie. It's a film that is usually ranked lower on Scorsese's film list, and it's so fascinating that you have a director who's also one of just the greatest directors of all time who made a great film that is still, like, when you can kind of compare it to the rest, you're like, eh. you know, like that's, I mean, I really like this movie, but a lot of other people were like, all of his other movies are just so much better. And it's not like a bad movie. It's just like, he's made so many other incredible films that have just shaped cinema history. This movie sort of leans on the world building a lot. And, and I sort of consider Daniel Day-Lewis's character as part of almost the set and you remember really, that's an insult but like you have this spectacular world that they've built and then you have daniel day lewis who is in that world and then you have a bunch of good actors playing de- decent roles 
in that world, but he is part of that world. He is part of those buildings, and they are real, and everything's real. And yeah, it's so it's interesting how like the rest, of what he built on top of that foundation is fine. It's good. It's not amazing though. It's not a, it's not a, his best work by far. You know, even close to his best work. But I still want to call it a masterpiece just because it's the best. It's top five world building I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah, no, I mean, I I like what you said of like that he is part of the the world because that's that's honestly how it feels. So much so that I feel like it alienates Amsterdam and Jenny where you kind of see them and they're like, Bill is so much of the time that those two are like, eh, they, I mean, they just kind of seem like 20th century people put into the 1800s. And they're titanic characters yes. that wandered on set. So this is this is actually my feeling towards this movie. I feel like this is Scorsese's Titanic. There's so many elements of this, not just the fact that Leonardo DiCaprio is in it, but that is this big sweeping epic that's like a, a point of history, like a dark point of history that hasn't just really ever been attempted as on on this scale. And there's so I mean there's the the bits that are just supposed to choke you up. The ending of the film, so much of that ending, I'm like, this is like the Titanic ending for sure. Even the music, and I mean the fact that like Howard Shore is the one that composed this, and it's like, it's it's a weird kind of straightforward score in some parts. Like the the score itself, it's it. I mean, it's Howard Shore, so there are parts where I'm like, this is very like Lord of the Rings esque, but the like traditional music that they put in there is amazing and it's fantastic. And then it's just kind of mixed in with, especially, I mean, I love, I love the opening battle scene, but the, I'm like, this is so like late nineties, early two thousands kind of like dates. And then it doesn't do it for the rest of the movie. Yeah. There's some weirdly like dated moments. Some of the editing is really weird and, and jarring and like, and it's like, man, I wish this was filmed more timelessly. Yeah, I, the, the the Titanic reference is, is really helpful, actually, to, to sort of frame what my criticisms are. And that is, I do wish the movie had picked a relationship. I think Amsterdam and the Butcher is the obvious relationship. But even if you're going to have the romance, like that relationship has to be central to the story. And it's just not. The romance is not central. It's not doomed at the end. If they treated the New York... Ro- riot the draft riots like the titanic this this foreboding thing that's coming that would have been much better i they keep implying it but it's not as well known too so it doesn't really do a good job of like it there's moments where it's like yeah okay you're setting this up but like it doesn't feel like connected to the main story and i think that's the biggest problem this movie has is that you have this well-realized world, especially when it comes to the gangs, right? The, the five points themselves and and how Tammany Hall relates to that too. That world is running and the plot is running within that world and it's really effective. And you have this fight at the end. The bizarre thing is that you have this draft riot story also happening and it seems like it has no connection whatsoever to what they're doing, Right. Bill is going to be a big part of promoting, like, they have him show him, like, hating Lincoln, right, and not liking the draft, and then when the time comes to riot about, when the draft comes, it's completely, they are, like, so focused on each other that they're not 
even they don't even realize the city's falling apart, right? And they have their fight separately. And that doesn't make any sense based on what the you know what the characters would be doing in that world. So that I think is the worst part is that he sort of decides to focus on this this gang rivalry story that's the main story and have it happening at the same time as the draft riots when those people would be heavily involved in that story. They wouldn't be going off on their own adventure. It's it's strange. And it's almost like I do wish that the, the riots themselves were treated with more gravitas because there's lynchings. There's orphanages getting burned down. It's a race riot. Like, it's awful. It's arguably the one of the most awful things that's ever happened in the city of New York, right? And it's sort of treated not heavily enough and it's they use the same music as the beginning there's sort of this upbeat fighting music it doesn't fit and then they sort of insulate their characters from the darkness that's involved with this rioting by having them go separately and oh you know we we didn't realize that the riot was the same day we played this fight you know and it undermines the characters a little bit because you can they're almost treated with kid gloves they're not allowed to engage with this heavier material at the end with a way that would cause them consequences, right? Like, you're going to hate Bill more when you see how he responds during these riots. But instead, he's not responsible. And I think that's a huge misstep. Yeah, I mean, I think they kind of hold back on Bill being put in that scenario. I think that's an executive decision where they're like, he's he's really bad. Like, he's the villain. But we can't see him lynching and being part of that mob like it doesn't feel like they're trying to redeem him but it also kind of does in a way because of his last line of like thank god i get to die a true-blooded american you know and like that sort of thing and i'm like are they trying to build empathy towards this guy because they really shouldn't and i think that's why they keep him out of it because they're like you need to hate him but you can't hate him that much i'm also just like (laughs) at the end of the movie i'm like so the bad guy is New York? <laughs> the Union Army is the bad guy? What's going it's, on? That, yeah, that yeah. whole bit is very confusing. And I have kind of wrestled with this of the treatment of it because it's like there's so much of a like, this is horrible, like easily the most disturbing part of the movie by far. And it like it almost ramps it up to a level that you didn't you don't see coming. Because in some ways, the film has been pretty tame. I mean, there's a lot of blood and gore, but you don't see it. But once you see them, like, setting the bodies on fire and, like, lynching them from the poles and just all that sort of stuff, it's just so unbelievably disturbing that it just feels, like, tonally weird in the film. And especially the fact of, like, at the end, I'm like, am I supposed to feel bad for these people that they were killed you know i mean like yes i do feel bad that people were killed but like the whole like candlelight thing and it's like nobody knew how many americans truly died those days and i'm just like what what emotions are they trying to provoke with this it's weird yeah and i don't think it's bad to tell a story from that perspective but it pulls punches yeah like the um i think the image the iconic image of him with the American flag draped around him, right? That's what makes him such a compelling character, right? He is so evil, and he's such this dark side of America, right? Versus the the side of America that's 
that the nation of immigrants, right? There's that conflict that's at play that's really, really interesting and really well played out at times. But the movie sometimes wants to have have its cake and eat it too because you have this weird stuff where it's like, look at this wonderful, zany, immigrant country uh, city that we live in where we have these Chinese uh, house theater stuff going on, which is not historically accurate. Obviously, they weren't there yet, but compressing timelines, right? Bill would not be there. Bill would not go to those places. Like, there's this weird thing where, like, he's almost fine being the king of a multicultural part of the city, but it doesn't really comport with him being the head of a nativist gang, right? So there's moments that sort of are used to make him likable of, like, he's the king of the kingdom, right? And he's going around to... And taking an Irish kid under his wing, and it's like that doesn't make two sense. Two Irish kids, and they, yeah, two Irish kids, and you could engage with that idea, and and that could be they could push that forward of like, you know, there's contradictions in his life, but they don't they don't engage with that. They sort of want him to be this compelling character in this compelling world, and this wonderful multi ethnic place that they live, where people are there's tensions, but it's like you know good nature ribbing almost sometimes. And it's like, no, 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 he hates Irish people. He hates Chinese immigrants, I'm sure, if that real person had to lived in a time where he had to deal with that. Like, he's not going to be in that building. He's not going to be in that part of the city. He's going to demand purity of the gang and everything like that. Maybe not 100%, but, like, it, there's a contradiction there that doesn't, the movie doesn't want to be a contradiction. And I think that's that plays out, it's, Earlier in the movie, it's kind of, you don't think about it, but then later in the movie, it's like, no, 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 this doesn't make any sense. This finale makes zero sense, and it's almost hurt by how effective Daniel Day-Lewis's char- like, work is with that character because you have the good side, right? The good side, quote-unquote. He's making him likable by being so effective, but they're not dealing with the dark stuff as much as I think a movie should have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... If that's one thing that Scorsese is very effective at is just making bad characters like likable. I mean, mm-hmm. Travis Bickle, I, I'm forgetting the Jake LaMotta, you know, all of these like just so many like scummy characters. And yet you're like, oh, I feel like kind of bad for them, though. All of his characters are interesting. And I think that he made and it's also Daniel Day Lewis, too, that they made Bill the Butcher so interesting and like too likable that it completely overshadows anyone else. And you like, I mean, you do care about Amsterdam, but it's you're just waiting for him to get back on screen again. All the stuff with Day Lewis is just so fascinating and so integral. And then it kind of goes a little bit vanilla whenever DiCaprio's on there. And DiCaprio's given a good performance. You know, I don't think it's the height of his career or anything like that. I think, you know, he kind of learns how to work with them and he's great in The Departed, amazing in Wolf of Wall Street and good in um, Shutter Island. But it's just strange, like, some of the choices for the actors in this. I get it with DiCaprio. It's like, you know, he's a young, up-and-coming, really good actor. But Cameron Diaz, to me, and, like, I don't like Cameron Diaz, but I still think this is, like, her best performance and it's not a good performance (laughs) it's a weird casting choice that's for sure it's i mean it's like a it's almost like a game too of like who in the film has the worst accent and i think it's by far her we'll talk about that later. (laughs) yeah um 
it that's I think you're pointing out something interesting is like yeah, typical the typical Scorsese protagonist is flawed if not irredeemable, right? But you're taking his perspective and there's sort of this this playing out of human nature of like you're going with them and then you're kind of waking up halfway through the movie like, "Oh, this is bad, right?" Like you're liking the sin, you're liking the the over the top evil that that you're go- engaging in or the brokenness that you're engaging in as a character. Wolf of Wall Street's the classic, mm-hmm. right? Like he makes all that seem fun. Ultimately, there are consequences, but you don't, while you're watching it, you don't feel the consequences. Like the character, mm-hmm. you're in you're in in that car with the character on that journey. What's weird about this one is that you don't have that with Amsterdam, or you do, but because you on the other side you have the same type of concept going on with this irredeemable character seeming so likable that at the end it's like wait. Am I supposed to be, is the flawed part of Amsterdam that he kills his father, and so that's bad that he, the revenge he gets bad, is bad, right? I think that's the message, but it, because there's kind of that Scorsese magic happening on both characters, it sort of gets muddled and confusing what you're supposed to take out of it. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to criticize it, because I think it's, Scorsese, that's the whole point, right? You're supposed to have a discussion about it, but... It's just a weird dynamic with the villain being more compelling than Amsterdam and Amsterdam doing a, a cliche revenge story and then it works and he succeeds and it's like, oh, I guess he wins, you know, almost anticlimactic. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, I think that's a lot of the Miramax influence of being like, you kind of have to have a straightforward good guy character because, I mean, there's just a lot of of the Scorsese formula where it's like the main character is bad, but he's always, he or she is always around someone who is a lot worse. And that's what kind of brings in that empathy where you have like Ray Liotta's character in Goodfellas where you're like, oh, this guy's awful, but he's nowhere near as bad as Joe Pesci's character. And like, you know, same with Casino or, or like Taxi Driver where Travis Bickle, you're like, wow, this guy is something else. And But then there's Harvey Keitel's character. And so that's like why... It works, and I really feel like that with Gangs of New York, he wanted to to do something like that, where it seemed like it could have very much been like a Goodfellas thing, where he just kind of gets, Amsterdam gets introduced to this life of crime, and you see bits and pieces of that where he really likes it, but then the overall narrative kind of comes in and like squashes that, and they're like, oh no, but he needs to be the good guy, and you don't really see you see a bit of the struggle of like him having to, you know, kill his new father figure, but you don't see any of like the power struggle or for, you know, just like those other elements that I feel like are usually explored in Scorsese films as well. But one of my overall points for this is going back to the whole meandering thing. I wish he just committed and made a Robert Altman esque film. That's like, yeah, there's kind of a plot, but it's really, you're just living in this world for like three hours. Like that would be amazing. Five hours. I could do a five-hour movie like this. Like, seriously. I mean, I. it does feel like they skip past a lot of stuff. It's like, no, I want more of this. You've built the sets. Like, you built the world. Let me live in it for a couple more hours. I, I honestly, my dream Scorsese movie would be Devil in the White City. Mm-hmm. I wish because um, I think it's going to be a miniseries adaptation that they're going to do. But him doing a movie like this of Devil in the White City, of that era, you know, big city. Full-blown uh, sets. 
full blown sets. It's just wonderful. And yeah, it's like it feels weirdly cut down for, for a movie this long. Well, I mean, it's it's funny though because there are a lot of these meandering scenes that in a sense, like if you're looking at it from a plot, a narrative structure, and an editing stature, it's like that stuff should be cut out. But it's the best stuff. Like you're saying, like the fire scene is amazing. Like that is just like I feel like Scorsese was more wanting to depict this era of history and kept on learning more and more. He's like, wow, this is fascinating. Like this is something that, you know, sets up a base for like things in New York now and are so interesting that he was kind of like so focused on that. And then it's like, oh, yeah, but we got to tell a plot. <laughs> All this stuff about like, oh, no, no, that's the Metropolitan Police. You called the municipal uh, municipal police. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. More Tammany, more everything. Uh, just give it to me. Uh, it's great stuff. And it's funny, too, because this feels like it should be... I feel like there's this section of films that even though they're rated R, they still can show them like in high school classrooms or families watch them, even though if they're like kind of more conservative with doing that because it's like, oh, it's American history. Stuff like Saving Private Ryan or The Patriot or that sort of thing where they're really gory, really graphic films... But they're kind of given a pass because they're like, yeah, it's historical. And I feel like this film, not that they're trying to make that, but it should be in that category. And it isn't. It's just weird. It's weirdly not gory at times. Mm -hmm. Like the first fight is super. They pull their they don't show blood. They show blood on the ground, but they don't show people getting hit. And it's weird because I think it was criticized for violence when it came out or something. But it's like it. They're really not showing it. I'm not saying they have to, but yeah, it's weird how they, they feels like that type of period piece, right? That's, it's not about the violence. It's about the authenticity, but then they do go all in sometimes. And it's, it's uneven in a lot of ways like that Mm -hmm. tonally. Um, and you're not sure what kind of movie it's, it is. Well, that's one of the things that Scorsese talks about in the making of this. And one of the, again, one of the reasons why I say it's his most ambitious film is because he's going at it from like a couple different expect, uh, perspectives where, you know, he's trying to do Fellini's Satyricon. And in a way, this film feels very much like a Fellini film because, I mean, one, they filmed it in Rome and they used Fellini's, you know, set designer. And there's just all of these massive, insane structures that at once feel both historical, but also feel like fantasy. There's just like this grandioseness to it, even though it's like grimy and mucky and all that sort of stuff. But then he's also said that he was heavily inspired by Russian filmmakers and early Russian filmmakers and that he loves montages and based the initial fight scene off of the Odessa stair steps sequence from Battleship Potemkin, which going back and watching, I was like, oh, this is a masterpiece. Like this opening fight is incredible with just like how much they play with it. It's, I mean, I honestly think it's the most effective scene in the film and it's the part of the movie that everyone remembers, you know, and then the rest kind of gets forgotten because it's just this huge blood of a moment. He said that, you know, they were, they would do shots of it where they would over crank, where they'd speed up the film during a part of it and then go back to normal and then under crank where they would slow it down. And so there's all of these weird shots that get like really fast for a second and then like really slow. And it's just so fascinating and it's so experimental. And I just kind of wish he had carried that a bit more throughout the film because it's such a fascinating scene. Like you said, like, there's no violence in it. There's gore, but there's no violence. And that's his whole thing where it's like, that's the brilliance of 
the Odessa stair steps is it's a brutal scene, but you don't see, like, you never see a knife go into someone. You don't see the bullets hitting people. You just kind of see them turning around covered in blood. And that's why it's so effective is because your mind is imagining. It pieces together that bit and makes something so much worse than what they would actually be able to show on film. Yeah, I love that. That first scene is is so good. And you're talking about fantasy, the fantasy slash gritty. The perfect example is, I think, the set design for the square, but especially the mount, weird mountain rock thing in front of the... the, um, uh, oh, the Monk's, uh, uh, Monk's Barbershop? Yeah, the barbershop. It, yeah, where there's like a rock. And I'm like... New York has like catacombs. The, like some of these things seem fantastic and not real, but it really adds to the world that he's building, even though it's not historically accurate. I don't think. Well, but yeah, it's interesting though because his set designer, the one who worked for Fellini, was saying that. I mean, they said that he's really meticulous in getting things accurate, and they were saying that you know they saw this picture. It might have not have been in the five points of this little shop on top of this giant rock. And Scorsese is like, oh, there's like definitely like caverns that go beneath New York and all these different elements mm-hmm. that are throughout. It's, it's kind of maybe not together. just, it just might not be in the five points. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they com- kind of combined a bunch of different things and, and give you, that's, it's weird how like stuff like that's not historically accurate technically, but it's still, you end up with a, an evokes the feeling of the city at the time more accurately than anything ever, probably, because of all that. Yeah, I think, I mean, in some ways it feels more effective than, let's say, like, The Patriot, which just, I mean, even though there are a lot of liberties taken with that, there's so much of it where it's like, all of the sets just feel kind of, I don't know, I mean, like, it's like, yep, that's how it is, but and that's, like, how they shoot it, of like, oh, this is just how it was, and then for this, Scorsese was like, oh, but this is how it would feel, like, this is how it would feel being in these places and, like, build the set around that, which they built, like, five blocks worth of sets. If you buy the DVD, I mean, it's a bad transfer. Miramax makes horrible DVDs with awful quality. But one of the bonus features on it is uh, Scorsese and the set designer walking through all of the sets. And it's just amazing how much they did for this. Like, even that opening shot of them being in, like, the catacombs and then like that big massive pull out to like the five stories of the, uh, this brewery that they're in. And it's amazing what they do. And they built like two replica sized ships that are in like two scenes of the movie. It's just insane. Like wall streets in there, PT Barnum's places in there, Tammany halls in there, the Chinese pagodas. It's just like insane how much they do with the production of this. Like this movie feels so massive that it felt like it shouldn't have happened in 2000. Oh, for sure. For sure. It's it feels very epic in scale and that it doesn't feel like it's era at all. Mm-hmm. Well, have okay, do you know about the George Lucas story with this? I do not. I mean, it's just a little thing, but so they filmed this outside of Rome because of course, you know, you can't film anywhere like this in New York. But while they were filming there, George Lucas was filming episode 1. And Lucas comes and visits set and was like, this is amazing. We need to get a picture of the two of us because this is this is history and future. This is the last time a movie will ever have sets like this again and will ever be this massive physically without digital. And he's like, I'm doing all of my stuff digitally. This is how everything is going to be in the future. This is the last time this sort of movie is ever going to be made. It's sort of right, right? Yeah, he was. I can't think... I mean... 
Yeah, I literally can't think of anything else that would kind of rival this. And and, at least to this extent. Like, this movie had a budget of $103 million, which is insane for the subject matter that it's taking on. That it's just a big, three-hour-long, gory, historical epic. And they give it $103 million. It's insane. I can't even think, is there anything like this since that has been this ambitious in terms of, like, sets? I mean, the closest thing I can think of is Lord of the Rings, which even still uses a lot of miniatures and a lot of kind of, not cheats, but, you know, add scale with other elements. It's old in a different sense of, like, Star Wars. Sure. And not, like, this is, like, Cleopatra. Yeah, so this is, like, the year, I mean, they're... Fi- probably what wrapping up filming of lord of the rings at this point right mm-hmm. and so like yeah this this is the last year where i can't think of anything this that's even that size but even nowadays whenever they try to do something like this they're not going to build an entire set of like the five points because i was like oh they must have found some place to film this but it's like no they built all of that it's like now they just use those like 10 old streets in london that are still like of like the 1800s and that's it they don't build sets they just kind of find places yeah where because they really like went in and and the streets and everything are laid out the way that you know the fist the way that that uh <laughs> it was back then and so yeah this really authentic building that the world the way it was george lucas is a prophet yeah he is. <laughs> profit Unfortunately. Of, profit, profit of doom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so should we should we I, talk about the accents then? Or di- did you have more that you're going to say about the sets and all that? No, no. It's, it's a trivia question. <laughs> of who of has joke. the worst accent? Literally, that's the first question in the trivia is who has the worst accent? And I have a bunch of options. And then the correct answer is Cameron Diaz. <laughs> <laughs> She just, like, completely loses her accent at points. Like, there's the scene whenever she's in the bed with Amsterdam, and she's whispering, and she has no accent. And then at other points, it's like, oh, heighty toity I hope you don't steal me necklace. And I'm like, are you a leprechaun? What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's just a weird one, because it's like, there's a lot of British actors that can do better. Why is she the one that's? Well, they you know. have like Liam Neeson and Brendan Gleeson in it, who are Irish and have Irish accents, and it's like, yeah, they're great. That's what it's supposed to sound like. Even Johnny is pretty good. I've always defended Leo because I'm like, yeah, you know, he was raised Irish for a bit, but then spent 16 years in like an American penitentiary sort of thing so you know he's gonna have a bit of a different accent it's still a little off especially in the narration but it's nowhere near as bad as that john c Riley's is also very over the top as well uh he's just an interesting element in the film he's he's great in this i think he's yeah. great in this but his accent is weird and mm-hmm. he like makes it thicker when he's when he's hunting i think like when he's oh hey you can trust what me here's think, my oh, irish yeah. accent i'm your uncle jack where you letting me off to? Oh, I didn't mean to fire that shot at you. You know, it's just like, yeah, I, I just wish they had like kind of toned everything down. The only time it works for the over the top is Daniel Day-Lewis because he's just great. Um, oh, he's so great. Although Boss Tweed is good too. Boss Tweed, Boss Tweed great. is great. Um, um, I, I think that I wish they spent more time with Monk and John C. Riley's character mm-hmm. because they're like from his old life and they they kind of imply that they're going to talk and they never really talk. I mean, he talks with Monk once, right? Or twice. 
and that's mm-hmm. it. And they're they're kind of in the background, and it's like ah, oh, I feel like they're going to set up them like talking about their plot, or you know maybe not, but 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 kind of him taking the mask off with them a little bit. But then do you know who Shakespeare was? The man who wrote the King James Bible. <laughs> so yeah. And he makes him he makes him cry, but that's mm-hmm. it. Like he makes him feel bad. So it's I mean I guess it's a way of isolating his character, right? He never actually reconnects with these guys from his childhood. Um, but even Johnny and him, it's just sort of like they're friends, and then that's it. Like they stop having. It's just Johnny like seeing him with Cameron Diaz. And he just like becomes too much of jealous. like a, yeah. He, but also, I mean, yeah. And then he gets impaled and then shot in the head. And that's like the one time in the film where you actually see like the violence kind of happen. But then like, oh man, Bill murdering Monk. That scene is just amazing. Like just the tension oh. of him just standing there, not saying anything. He's like, well, let's just handle this like politely. And then like walks in and you just see him like just chuck the butcher knife. And then like the, him like bringing the shillelagh down on him is just like brutal and you don't see anything you know and but i think i think the cut whenever they're trying to or whenever amsterdam shoots johnny is just a little bit off because like i love i wish it like as soon as like he fires like that you don't see all of the blood shooting out but that it just cuts to bill just like when he's sharpening his knife and he just kind of stops and then goes back to sharpening and you're like oh man that is so freaking good like there's just some of the best elements of his filmmaking in it and then there's just weird stuff that happens. Like the whole Amsterdam being healed is Frodo being healed in Fellowship of the Ring. It's so weird. Like it's even the same score and just like Monk coming in. And he's like, I didn't take from your father, but I held on to the, the razor blade for you. And I was like, what? That does not seem like his character, like that they've built up to so far. It's just strange. That That whole scene is where the movie gets weird because... Yeah, you're building up this tension of this, should I kill him, should I not kill him, right? And then he kind of imp- almost feels impulsive, right? He impulsively decides to try and kill him at a moment that isn't a good time to try and kill him that way, right? But he just, he feels like he has to, he does it, and then he goes and gets healed, and it's all of a sudden like this revenge story becomes this sacred quest now, with holy overtones that it totally didn't have before. And his relationship starts to sour when he tries to kill him. And it's so, it's just a weird, there's all this character work, there's character tension between them building up of like, should I do it? Should I not? And then it just completely changes the rest of the movie because he's visited by this guy and he's, he's reminded that he has a quest and it's like weird. It's just weird. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's very, I mean, that's like kind of where I feel like the folklore tale part of it takes a turn for the worse. And it's like, ah, it's just, you know, I, I think everything that happens after is interesting. Like all the political stuff is great. All of the political stuff in this movie is amazing. Like I kind of wish that that was the main story of the film was just like them trying to control the city over politics, you know? And it's like, it might not be as as traditionally engaging as like the film is, but man, it would be so good. Gosh, if we could see more of that and just like, yeah, that's where like all the dynamic characters are, you know, is is like a lot of this, like the political stuff that gets in there. And I mean, it's interesting hearing about him talk about the film because he says that this and 
Last Temptation of Christ were the two hardest movies that he made. And I mean, both of them in like the physical production of it because it was just so intensive and like just the weather and climate and all that sort of stuff. And he said for this one, it was just such a massive scale that it was so hard to handle. Like everything was just kind of put in front of him. And they're like, okay, well now what do we do? And then he's doing that while also battling with Miramax to try to make the movie that he wants to make. And he was saving the the two last things, uh, the two big things for last. The draft riot and the initial battle scene were two of the last things that they filmed for the movie, which just sucked up the rest of the budget. And he said he got to do the initial battle scene how he wanted, but the draft riot is really why he wanted to make this movie is because he thought it was so fascinating. And he's like, it just has to culminate around it. And it's just a part of history that he's like, this is so interesting that this happened. I have to portray it on film. And he had this giant, grandiose idea for it and was filming like all of these little bits and vignettes. And then Harvey Weinstein comes in and is like, okay, you can shoot like two more scenes of this. Like, what do you want to <sighs> shoot? Yeah. 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 So there was, cause there was supposed to be so, it was supposed to be so much more expansive. And he was just like, I just never finished the script for it because I couldn't completely contain all that was going on in it. Cause it goes on for four days. And, Everything kind of gets sped up because of that. And there was supposed to be just like this expansive, massive thing that was probably supposed to be like the last third of the movie. And yet they're like, okay, you can't spend any more money. And so then he puts in his own money and then runs out of money for it. And then they just kind of have what was left of it at the end. And it's just so sad. I'm like, ah, I just wish that... You know, they could have just filmed a bit more stuff. And he's like, to this day, I could still be edit or making this movie because there's just so many pieces of history that I wanted to show in it and just didn't have the time or money for it. I didn't know that, but that totally explains pretty much all the problems I have with this movie, honestly. Like, they could have, a lot of the stuff I had issues with, they could have wrapped up these character threads. Oh, man, that's a bummer. That makes me so sad because that it really is supposed to be a bookend and it just is. It's so anticlimactic instead of being this huge Titanic ship sinking. That's what the whole movie's like building of towards. New York, yeah. Burning of New York. And instead, it's weird sped up news reports or yeah. reading. And, and I actually like that. I like what he does with it. He does an amazing job with very little. Um, but it doesn't fit with the movie that was building up to it. And it's mm-hmm. super disappointing knowing that. Well, he was saying that all of the stuff that's reported in the telegram was supposed to be filmed and stuff, but since that they didn't have the the time or budget for it, that they're like, well, I guess we just kind of have to explain some of the stuff that's going on. Like, I think it was supposed to be this big impending union troop march that's like slowly going through the city, like trying to get to the mobs and all that. And then like the howitzer shells coming in and just like all of that was supposed to be this big lead up instead of like a bunch of like mob shots. And then all of a sudden explosions happen and everything's kind of done yeah it's sort of treated the same way as like the electioneering like when they're running for um, trying to get monk elected it's like all this stuff happening and it's we totally you have this weird you know kind of joyous corruption stuff that they've been doing all movie and then you're dealing with stuff way different tonally with the same attitude and it really is tone deaf i think and uh yeah, that it totally explains it and, mm. and makes me angry. Yep. And I think there was supposed to be this big battle scene at the end between the two instead of it them just getting like shelled and it's all over. Because it is, like you're saying, it is pretty anticlimactic where it's just 
Bill running at him in the smoke. And it's like, okay, you know, all right. But nothing else really happens in that scene. Like, yeah, it's it's just weird. I mean, it definitely seems like a scene towards the end of a movie that they're trying to wrap up and just like scrounge together the last bits of money to finish it. And then they show the, the, the two towers. Interesting. I thought that was a good decision on his part. Yep, I think too. it's important because, the, like you said, the the uh, it's the story of New York being built up, not being torn down. Yeah, I do. I as like cheesy as it is, that whole like last like New York skyline thing does kind of get me a little bit, and it makes me mad that it kind of gets me because it is so much like trying to pull on the heartstrings of the moment. Like I guarantee you especially like New Yorkers who saw this movie in 2002 were just like bawling their eyes out at that scene. You know, like it's very effective in the sense of like, just like the, they'll be forgotten. And then just, and you know, it's just like very dramatic and very over the top. But you're like, oh, gosh, dang. It's you know, such like, a good shot. I mean, this, the, I love that type of thing, like showing that much history in so much detail happening and things growing and, and it really feels like you're seeing the entire city growing. It's it's so effective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not just a fade from one picture to another. It's it's <laughs> you feel like you're getting every era in there. Yeah. And then you two. <laughs> no one's more timeless than you two. Well, I I do say they are pretty timeless, but this is also in like one of the worst periods of their career. It's just kind of weird. I'm like, okay, I guess they picked them because they're Irish. And they're like kind of American in the sense that, you know, they have a lot of songs about America. It's just weird. It's a very weird choice, but it's very of the time. 2002 is a different time, Creed. That is so true. I mean, Scorsese loves like rock and roll and blues and all that sort of stuff. And so I'm, I'm just kind of surprised with how many connections he has in the music industry that they picked you two. Which I love you two, but I don't think it was the right pick for this. It's what America needed, Creed. <laughs> and and then just the weird like title sequence at the end of like zooming around the giant like letter print of the gangs of New York and all that. It's it's strange. <laughs> it doesn't really feel Scorsese. That's what the, like this movie doesn't feel like him a lot of times. Not in a bad way necessarily, but it, it yeah, it's it does seem someone meddled in it. The same villain that's ruining all of these movies in this series, apparently. Well, should we move on to Trivia and Challenge? Absolutely. So this is not Scorsese's first collaboration with Daniel Day-Lewis. What was the first? Age of Innocence. Age of Innocence, correct. Who has the worst... (laughs) Uh, Who's your list for the worst accent? Basically, all the main characters, but then I listed Cameron Diaz twice. We could skip that. We basically did the Joker. So, uh, wait, John C. Riley, Cameron Diaz... Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, who else has a bad accent in this movie? I feel like there's quite a few. I put A, Cameron Diaz, B, Liam Neeson, and then Liam the Neeson. Two, Liam Neeson is just his accent. I. That's the joke. It's part of the joke. And then and then uh, Cameron Diaz again. Which, even though <laughs> Liam Neeson is only in this movie for five minutes, he's great. Yes. He's amazing. He's in this. so good. Of course, he's he's that character. Never he's the only one that can play that character. Yeah, it's so good. 
so we'll skip that. That <laughs> we kind of ruined my joke by. I'm sorry. Having happened, no, it's so it's so bad. We have to talk about it. It's I part of the movie. I just don't know it's what she was accent. trying to do with her performance all throughout it. I was like, I just don't understand the acting choices that she is making with this. I feel like Irish accent is unforgivable when you do it wrong. I okay, British so, too. Those two. There's plenty of people that can do the accent. And there, are, when I see her being in this movie, I assume she's going to do a good accent, and then she doesn't. There are four accents that I think that, to me, I'm just like, I can never stand unless I've, like, perfectly executed. Irish is one, Russian, German, and French. So many of those, it's just so characterized, like, caricatured that it's just unbearable. And there's a so lot of like, unbearable Irish accents in this movie. So you didn't like Tenet's villain, then? that was fine. It wasn't as, I mean, he was over the top. The accent was, uh, there are some points where it was very over the top, but it wasn't too over the top. Like, you know, there's just like that certain Russian accent that people always like revert to. And you're like, Oh, like I have to listen to this again. Yeah. So real next real actual question. (laughs) Who suggested that Scorsese hire DiCaprio? Because they've since had a, a long career together, but who was the person that suggested that Scorsese hired DiCaprio? A, Matt Damon. B, Leonardo DiCaprio's mom. C, Robert De Niro. D, Robert Redford. E, Daniel Day-Lewis. Oh, that isn't any of... I, I thought I knew who that was, but I guess not. Um, This feels like whenever you you have a math question and you, you add up the sum on your calculator and you're like, I know what it is, and you're like, oh... None of these answers are mine. Uh, <laughs> yep. I'm going to say Robert De Niro. Yep. Okay. Robert De Niro. I was really impressed with uh, this boy's life. And uh, then he told him that he needs to, to hire this guy. He's really good. So he told him pretty early on. I mean, he was, by this time, he's, you know, well known. But yeah. uh, he had told him at some point before because of that early... Because I thought it was James Cameron who talked to him, but that might have been at a different point. Like, maybe he was consulting with him about it later on. But, yeah, I, I totally buy mm-hmm. that De Niro would say, like, hey, get DiCaprio mm-hmm. for this because, yeah. So, obviously, Daniel Day-Lewis is a, a famously uh, a method actor and one of the most celebrated uh, method actors, the most celebrated method actor in Hollywood. Which of the following is, an un- is not true? about something that Daniel Day-Lewis did on set. A, he prepared for the role by listening to Eminem. B, he broke his nose during a scene, but then finished that scene. C, he hated his hairstyle so much in this movie that when shooting was done, he shaved his head bald. Or D, Daniel Day-Lewis kept his accent during the entire filming uh, of this movie, including Offset. He definitely kept his accent. That's the thing that he always does. Oh, this is also a shout out to the hair and makeup department. How how they made his hair so greasy throughout the movie is incredible. Like, it just looks so good throughout, and I don't know how they did it. There's so much greasy hair in this movie. So, so much glorious greasy hair. So much sweat, so much grime. They give DiCaprio really gross teeth. It's great. Um, oh, sorry. Uh, I didn't say the last one. Oh. The last one is uh, all of the above are true. Oh, e. man. That feels like a trick. I, I'm going to say A. It was D. I couldn't find that he would, did the accent offset. 
like oh after i heard they made in, the movie. there's interviews where they're like oh he talks like him all the time like uh liam neeson said he encountered him at a gym once and he was just like hey mm-hmm. priest you know and like addressed him like that so so then it's e so I it was, is e. I, I thought i put that in there because i thought it but i couldn't confirm it but yeah it's e it's all of them all of them are true yeah dicaprio broke his nose uh, mm-hmm. in a scene the head bashing he, thing they i i don't know what yeah they they um they fin- they finished the scene when he went they, they didn't stop he's like just keep going I always love those stories because everyone's like, oh my gosh, they're so great. Like, like that. But I feel like if I, I'm not trying to say I'd be a great actor. <laughs> I wouldn't. But like, I feel like if I was a, in character, right? And I was particularly like in a fighting scene and I broke my nose, I'd be like, all right, before I start feeling the pain, let's keep going. Like, mm-hmm. this is great. I got good stuff here. I got, I'm in character a lot. I'm not going to go heal. Like, right. Give me, give me one take with this. Because yeah, that's at the least, part you know. when he's like bashing his head and then he stops and just like screams at him. It's like you gotta, you, you gotta believe that that's why he was just able to scream like that. Yeah. So, here's your challenge. In 1971, uh, Daniel Day Lewis made his debut in an uncredited role in Sunday Bloody Sunday. Mm-hmm. Since that, he has been credited in 20 films. How many can you name? Okay. This is not a get them all right. You're, I don't know if you're going to get them all, but I'm not going to be able to many... get them all. But I kind of okay. My beautiful laundrette. Yep. Uh, my one. left foot. Yep. Age of Innocence. Yep. Last of the Mohicans. Correct. Kings of New York. The Boxer. Six. Uh, okay. Most recent Phantom Thread. Mm-hmm. Nine. Mm-hmm. There will be blood. Mm-hmm. Lincoln, of course. Uh oh oh the ballad of Jack and Rose. Yes, sir. Okay, now I might need some hints. There's a, a legal drama. Or there's a famous courtroom scene, I'll say that. You know, that's the you have two Ooh. missing in the 90s, and then everything else is from the 80s. Oh, really? There, That was all the ones from the 2000s and 10s? Yep. Oh, shoot. Okay, well, now this is going to be a lot trickier. One of them is related to something related to the history period. The, the name is the name of a flag related to the period of history that this movie, that Gangs of New York is in. Oh, Name of the Father. Yeah, that's the, yeah. That's a great movie. He's amazing in that. Um, another movie with a lot of U2 songs in it, or a U2 song. There's one that's a classic play, but also something related to the video game Destiny. The Crucible. The Crucible. <laughs> nice, that was a good hint. Movie too good. I feel like you've gotten the ones that I would think of for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's some 80s ones that I can like picture the covers of them in my head, but I am blanking on the names. One of them is the first one where he got credited, but credited role was one of these classic 80s best picture Oscar bait epics. I know exactly what you're talking about, and I can see it in my head, but I'm... One word. This is in the 80s, right? 80s. 
82. 82. Oh, frick. Yeah, it was one where I like I was looking at his filmography and I was like, wow, I forgot he was in that. Do you know director? I'm not giving you any more clues. Okay. A famous person. A the director is? Fam- no, the movie's oh. about a famous person. Gandhi. And Gandhi, yeah, Gandhi. That's... Probably about it. One more that I've... Was that the courtroom one that you're saying? No, the, the name of the father. Oh. Is it a 90s one that I'm blanking on? That you nope. think These I could get? all 80s. Oh, wow. I'll, get, I'll give you the years. 84, 85, 86, 88, 88, 89. It's crazy that he did more than one in a year. That's... Mm-hmm. Or even that much, that close together. Yeah, it's close together, yeah. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get anything else. That's okay. I wanted to see how many you could get. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. 15. I like these more because it's like a test of instead of just, okay, we'll keep going until you get them all. Mm-hmm. 15 out of 20, that's pretty good. I, I <laughs> thought, should I make the challenge 15 or should I make it 20? But So you sort of got it, my goal for you anyway. 75%. I'll read you off all of them in a row. Study Bloody Sunday in 71. Uncredited role as a child or something. Uh, mm-hmm. Gandhi, 82, 84. The Bounty. Oh, dang it. I'm, yeah, that's uh, that's the Mel Gibson one. 85, My Beautiful Laundrette. Uh, 85, A Room with a View. 86, Nanao. 88, Nanao. N-A-N-O-U. I've never heard of it. I don't know anything. 88, The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Dang it. Yep. I'm bummed I didn't get that one. 88, Stars and Bars. That's the clue I was trying to give I you was that. almost going to say Stars and Bars, but I was like, no, that's not it. 89, My Left Foot. 89, Ever Smile, New Jersey. And then you got the rest. Last Mohicans, 92, 93, Age of Innocence, Name the Father, The Crucible. The Boxer, Gangs of New York, The Ballad of Jack and Rose, There Will Be Blood, Nine, Lincoln, Phantom Thread. Do we know if he's doing another movie? Uh, I mean, he is in another retirement period where he is a cobbler in Ireland, but who knows? I know he says he retires after every movie now, but actually, when did he retire the first time? Do you know? How many Uh, times? I mean, that was one of the ones in the 90s. He came out of retirement to do this. Okay, like he did the just, boxer and then went into retirement for like four or five years. The most discerning actor in Hollywood, I would say. <laughs> I'm looking up stars and bars right now, and it looks crazy. <laughs> what? Keith David is in this? And Joan Cusack? Harry Dean Stanton? This looks weird. Lori Metcalf? Por- Holy cow. It's, it, uh, it's a poorly designed flag. It looks too much like the Union flag. All right. Well, I think that about wraps us up for this episode. And uh, I mean, we're actually filming a couple of these episodes together. And this is the last one. We're uh, for a bit. We are taking a break. I'm getting married. And so we are deciding to take the month of September off, I think, or a month after this releases, we are taking off. So we do not know what our next film will be right now. But who knows? Maybe by the time we have this edited that I, I can throw it in. Enjoy the break 
listen to some other good film podcasts. As always, please make sure to follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. You can find our videos there. We are at Rules of the Frame. That's also where you can contact us as well if you want to message us and recommend a film or maybe you don't think Kings of New York is a messy masterpiece and you want to combat us on one of our stances, that's a great place to do it as well. Or you can just email us too. We love hearing from you guys. And who knows, if you suggest a film, it might just get picked. We'd also really appreciate it if you rated us on iTunes. That just helps make our show more visible. Or if you want to share it with family and friends, we really appreciate that as well. Got to say thanks to John for the use of the graphic and to Caden Reed, Ethan Stafford, and Luke Hogan for the use of the theme song and the outro. This has been Film Analysis for a Modern Audience.